The Morning Before the Dream, August 2021, eight years and three months since my mother's death, age 38. The scene was familiar. I'm really sorry, Jazz, Tom said, because I'd lived it over and over for years. I pursed my lips, shrugged. It's whatever. This agent, though, she's just one person. She is. Because it's always just one person saying no. I know you were really looking forward to her critique. He tried. But there's only so much to say about rejection. I don't think I can keep doing this. I'm telling you, it's just a numbers game. I was already shaking my head. It's a numbers game. The only difference between published and unpublished authors are the ones who didn't give up. You only need one yes. It's a completely subjective business. You want someone representing you who is passionate about your work. I think I could write a novel with the compilation of sayings I've heard over the years and how none of them hit the root. Yeah, but I mean, the numbers thing, it's never been true for me. I think there's other reasons. I gestured to other things. Tom is very grounded and practical, and if he were in my place, it probably would just be a numbers game. But I believe that things happen for a reason, in teachable moments, and the idea that there's a bigger plan that hasn't been revealed yet. I sat on the one dining room chair we have by the fridge. Tom was perched higher across the kitchen behind the breakfast bar. Our multi-poo honey usually sat where I was, tracking my every move waiting for that moment when I'd accidentally drop some food on the floor. If not honey, then the girls. Back when there was regular school, they'd come home and unpack their days while I'd fix them a snack. And now it was me, sitting with another disappointment, a critique back from a literary agent I had paid through an online service to read my query and first ten pages of my manuscript. I don't know then, Tom said. I can't do it anymore. Sleep on it. Give it some time. She hated it. I laughed, even though it wasn't funny. Jazz. Like, like nothing, not one thing was right. It sucks. You were really looking forward to it, he said again, circling us back to the beginning, just like always. I had paid for the same service with the same agent three years prior with an earlier version of the same manuscript. She'd been encouraging then, seemed to show interest in the story, and provided helpful feedback on how to fix some of its problems. We'd gotten along well, but I can't say there was any extreme connection that brought me back to her, only that she had availability in her schedule, and the timing felt synchronistic, like a big full-circle moment, one where I could prove, to her, to myself, how far I'd come, how much I'd grown, both in voice and vision, and perhaps she'd seen me. She'd want to read more. It was with my first manuscript, the story I'd started on those brown paper napkins, the one that I wrote and rewrote hundreds of times, and to me it never got old. The plot and its characters, pen and love survived, but they played different roles, and its category morphed over the years as I too changed, that by the end became something so completely different from that original idea, but with each new version, the heart remained. Throughout my years of querying, I'd written two other manuscripts, 
both also rewritten a number of times. By the time I started novel writing, my voice came easily, but the technical side of storytelling involving craft and structure did not. Through a lot of practice and hard work, I learned as I went. I will always be a work in progress, but I thought I had cracked it, that I'd finally arrived at what the story always wanted to become, what I had wanted to become as an author. And then, after six months of querying and not getting any requests from agents, I decided to pay for a 10-page critique to try and figure out what might be wrong. After a six-week wait, it came back, and there wasn't one redeeming thing she mentioned. In her opinion, I'd started the novel in the wrong place. I was heavy-handed and clumsy in my discussion of race. I wasn't focused on the right storyline or the right character dynamic or the right point of view. The story was overly complicated, and even my title, The Difference in Beauty, while she thought was lyrical, didn't make sense to her. By the end, knowing it had been three years since her last read, she advised that I put the story aside and start on something else. She didn't understand my voice or vision. She didn't see my potential or growth. She definitely didn't want to read more. And unlike the hundreds of other rejections and setbacks and criticisms I'd received over the years, because there were a lot, this one felt final in the way the others hadn't, like a closing instead of an opening. I found I didn't have the take what resonates, leave the rest attitude I'd maintained throughout the process. After seven years in pursuit of this very specific goal, I found I didn't have anything left to give. I didn't want it anymore enough to try again. And while all of that was true, with some space and reflection, I could see there was another layer and that Tom had a valid point. It wasn't conscious, but in a way I was giving away my power to one person who didn't really matter because there was an additional piece that happened between year one and year three of my querying process that continued to keep me off balance. The YA publishing industry in particular, and shortly after, the publishing industry as a whole, had gone through a huge transformation, a reckoning from the hundreds of years of racial inequality and suppression and silencing of voices that have been considered other. The We Need Diverse Books movement began, along with Own Voices, alongside call-out and cancel culture. Like any revolution, this diversity and inclusion movement had gone through its own evolution. As it mirrored our larger societal landscape, there was a lot of anger, a lot of division of right, wrong, good, bad. I think there were many on the sidelines that watched it unfold and weren't so divided or divisive. But oftentimes, the voices that are amplified are the ones that are most extreme, on both ends. I knew the conversation was important. While it was difficult, I valued it as it allowed me to expand my perspective and added a new lexicon to the outdated language and beliefs I'd grown up with. But I also knew that's what it needed to be, a conversation versus a battle. I wasn't part of the industry for it to affect me professionally, but it did and continues to affect me greatly as a creator. At points of the movement, there was an idea that you weren't allowed to tell a story featuring main characters outside of your lived experiences, skin color, ethnic or cultural background, religious beliefs, even gender. I understood the harm it could cause to pretend to be an authority on something you hadn't embodied, except these weren't autobiographical stories being censored, but fiction. No matter how much inner and outer work I did, I couldn't shake the feeling of needing permission from someone inside the industry to validate me, to tell me I was allowed to write about characters outside my identity. And then, with the critique, the agent proved my biggest fear, that no matter how hard I tried, I'd always be wrong. I'm white-skinned, 
and 100% Ashkenazi Jew by blood but not by culture. I was born and raised on an island by hippie parents and brought up in the church. I spent middle school through college in the conservative South. Without knowing me, if someone looked at me, they would never be able to know my identity or how I identify or why. Per these rules, even though my stories were make-believe, I felt sorted and boxed, not only from the outside, but the inside too. Similarly to the dogmatic thinking of my youth, I could see both sides, but neither extreme felt true. I couldn't figure out where I fit, because even if I did write a story I'm allowed to, I would never be the voice for all people who look like me or share common ancestry, and to pretend any one person is the voice is to miss the point entirely. We're unique individuals with complex perspective and experiences, and to gatekeep or sort everyone out by whatever box they check, or to have a measure of your enoughness in order to be considered part of a group, is not only short-sighted, it's also vastly damaging to our potential of growth, to our inherent connectedness, to art itself. Just like we need to be conscious consumers, we need to be conscious creators with the idea that there is fluidity and nuance to every identity. And we have to not just allow, but celebrate when things and people and ideals bend and shift. We must create space for us to take a stance or write the narrow piece and then change our mind without fear of being canceled. But like everything, this too is layered. While seeking more understanding, I came across an interview with Dominican-American author Julia Alvarez in the LA Times for her novel Afterlife. When asked about the controversy and backlash surrounding the release of American Dirt by Janine Cummins, a non-Mexican author writing a book about Mexican migrants and dubbed trauma porn by the critics, Alvarez explained, People are hurting, and in this case, we see that the Latino community, their stories are sidelined and marginalized and not published for years, finds work about their culture by an outsider. American Dirt being published was so painful for us, and it rubbed it in, the lack of representation. It needs to be addressed, but I don't want to become one more reactive voice. She goes on to say, The outcry became an ideological conflict in which anger overcame any opportunities for thinking about what we have in common, for becoming what MLK Jr. called a beloved community. Alvarez ended with something I've carried since. Activist Ruby Sales used to say at angry meetings between white supremacists and black power leaders, where does it hurt? Through her holistic response, Julia was able to pull back and up and out what art in its deepest forms can channel and what my old therapist used to call eyes of the universe. Alvarez became the eyes, and because of it, I could see in a way I hadn't been able to before, right to the root. Where does it hurt? I'm not sure there's a more important question. We all have different reasons for coming to the page. I'm here because I believe it's my authentic form of expression. It's honoring my soul's purpose. It brings me joy, and in doing so is my highest form of service. It's like what Martha Beck says, when I'm happy, I serve, and when I serve, I'm happy. It's true, the journey often frustrates me, but so do mosquitoes. Everything has a role, and I know journey's role is always for my growth. I'm okay with the singular goal. It propels me forward while at the same time engages my curiosity about the world and my place in it. But I also believe that sometimes when we're so focused on the one thing, 
We forget why we began. We lose sight of what matters. Alexander Graham Bell's quote of one door closing and the other opening has been repeated often. In the moment of the door slamming shut, I always felt it lacks a layer of understanding. And segmented it does, because like so much of our history, both collectively and as individuals, we miss the most important part, the root. The door closing is part of Bell's quote, but it's not all of it. When one door closes, another opens, but we so often look so long and so regretfully upon the closed door that we do not see the ones which open. We do not see the ones which open. With the critique a door had closed, even if it was a numbers game, or that agent was just one person who didn't really matter, I could have carried on the way I had been going, focusing on the closed door, banging my head against it, begging for it to open, or I could concede that her feedback had served, that it precipitated an energy shift in my process, one where I needed to listen to my internal compass that told me it was time to stop pushing, that it was my choice whether to open to the possibility that there was another door, at times too stuck in regret, one I hadn't been willing to see. In bed that night, I curled onto my side, folding into my crab shell, I'd already become intimate with grief. It was just me, alone again, and I was so very tired. Some pray to God, others to goddesses or nature. Often I pray to my higher self, the part of me that holds the blueprint for my greatest expression. It's a personal thing, the way that I commune. Mostly it's in my mind without spoken word. But in times of pure surrender, I find it's not so much a choice as a necessity to spill the words out loud. If this is what I meant to do, I whispered. I gently rocked back and forth, holding myself as a mother would with their child. If this is how I meant to show up. I wasn't bargaining, but the words rushing over my lips were a plea. Then show me. Show me another way. That night, the dream came. I have never doubted once that I'm allowed to tell this story. I'm Jasmine Rasmussen, author and narrator of Saved, a memoir on purpose. Join me weekly for an oral telling of my novel, written in verse and prose, broken into short, digestible episodes. I'll guide you through my journey back to self. Click the link below to subscribe or go to jasminealiarasmussen.substack.com to find out more.